Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Sam Abrika, the CEO of Nova Money, an AI financial planner designed to help you build financial freedom. In this episode, we will learn how to invest in real estate, starting from scratch. We will hear the story of Lane, a former civil engineer who, after years of hard work, eventually managed to build enough passive income to quit his job. If you ever search real estate investing on the internet, you will find a lot of fake gurus talking in a strange language full of jargon. This is because they are sadly targeting vulnerable people who don't have enough financial education to see it's a scam. And as Lane will explain, investing in real estate is simple but not easy. Hello Lane, very excited to have you today in the show as a guest. Today's topic is all about real estate investing. So, welcome Lane. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. First question, why did you choose to, do, to go for real estate investing? Well, I mean, I kind of started on this linear path where I was kind of taught to be really frugal with my money, max out my 401k, my retirement accounts, and um, became an engineer and just started to you know, build wealth, save my money, and eventually buy a house to live in, which I don't necessarily think is a good financial decision. But I turned it into a rental, and that was where I got this taste of passive cash flow from renting my property out. And you know, I, I realized that if I just rinse, wash, repeat, did this again and again and again, I'd be able to quit my day job by replacing my salary with this method. Why real estate? Um, it can be done passively. And tax benefits, the fact that the tenants are paying down your mortgage for you, it's amazing. And... You get we have great leverage options. We get great debt on this type of stuff. So and it's a hard asset at the end. So that that's why real estate. Uh, eventually, quit my day job. Currently, own forty eight hundred rental properties today, and it's worked. And I've kind of done this, been able to quit my day job in less than a decade doing this stuff. Well done. A lot of people who try real estate investing start exactly the way you did. They buy their first property to live in. This is their house. And they often don't see it as an investment, but rather as an emotionally driven decision to live with their house, to build uh, with their wife or their partner, to build a family. And it sounds like this is how you started. What was the trigger for you to say, now I'm going to rent my place, I'm going to leverage, and I'm going to multiply this strategy? Yeah, I mean, the first one was just all by accident. I was, as a new young engineer, um, you know, they usually send the you know the new folks out on the road. So I was really never home at all. So I was only home on Saturday. So for a young 20-year-old guy, that was seemed pretty w wasteful for me. <laughs> so I was like, well, let me rent this thing out, right? Like, So that's where I got the taste of cash flow. And then that's where I really got a little more sophisticated, started reading the books, the podcasts. I have my own podcast today where I talk about real estate investing, buying your own rentals. And this is where I really started to learn, you know, about cash flow investing and just started to pick up more and more rentals. Initially, it was slow because I was limited to how much money I had from saving from my day job. Because the way I do it is, you know, we just do boring um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac government subsidized loans where you need 20% down payment. Maybe I should have started this at the top, but you know the type of investing I do is passive real estate investing. You need money to invest. All these no money down, wholesaling houses, flipping houses, I don't do any of that type of stuff, right? To me, that's a job. 
But if you have a good paying salary, you're able to save your money, eventually you want to move into the passive investing side, which is just, you know, you need money to do that. Right. You did. You need to save for the initial deposit or the down payment, as it's called in America. And once you do that, most people, they buy the flat for themselves. And often the game stops here because they will spend their entire life repaying their own mortgage and they will never buy another property and the third one, the fourth one. Exactly. And we're all kind of brainwashed to have that be the path, right? Yeah. The, the get a stable was- job, get a stable house, build a family. And that's it. Work for 40, 50 years. Maybe you might get to retirement, right? That's the song and dance. Hope that your pension fund in, <laughs> yeah, hope for your pension fund in tr- to do well, and maybe you will retire at 65. Right, right. But if you're a millennial and you're thinking you're going to get a pension, I mean, you probably believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and you know, all these fictional characters. <laughs> it ain't going to happen, guys. Here in America, we have Social Security. That, that stuff's not going to be around for folks. You know, that's a joke. And retirement accounts, you know, all this, these supposedly like tax-free things, like none of the wealthy do this stuff is what I've kind of realized. They invest in businesses or real estate and they invest on their own in court. The problem with all these, like here in America, we have 401ks, but we're stuck in this, this. When you're in the 401k, you're stuck with this garbage options. And those garbage options are just what the big brokerages want you to invest in because it's heavily feed to death and they take a lot of the profits away from you. That's ultimately why hardworking folks struggle to get ahead because they're stuck in quicksand with this stuff. So I kind of realized this early, like when I was had my first rental property, it wasn't that great of a rental property. The numbers weren't that great, but I was able to make 20 to 30% returns of my money. When you include the appreciation, tax benefits, the fact that the tenants are paying down your mortgage for you, where when you own your own house, you're the one putting in a hard sweat and tears to pay down the mortgage. And then lastly, you're making money with the monthly cash flow. Um, we'll talk about that later, the 1% rent-to-value ratio. But, you know... Right. He- What's the, exactly the 20 to 30% profit? Is it like the return on capital that you have invested? Or is it when you sold your first property? Right. The return on capital on a month-to-month basis. Wow. That's super high. Right. And I was like, well, why would I want to put my money in the stock market thing at 8 to 10% where it goes up and down like a roller coaster when I can just kind of do it on my own, make double, triple this? If people don't believe me on the numbers, they can go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash returns. I do a little whiteboard exercise with the numbers if you don't believe me. But this is where I started to realize like this whole system is engineered against us to kind of take our money away keep us working forever um, <laughs> whatever you call it corporate greed or you know these brokerage i mean that's how they make all these big buildings and high high wall street salaries and stuff like that um for, so what i'm advocating for people to do is just get a little spend a little time to learn this yourself do it on your own and get all the returns that is you know that's you deserve it you should get and don't give most of it to the big companies I've worked a bit in the investment fund industry. I was looking at all the return in their shareholders' report. Most of them didn't have 20 to 30% return. They were averaging around 3, 4, 5, maximum 10%. What's right. your secret? 
even worse, right? Three, four, five percent. I'm not talking about the negative ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the secret? I mean, there is no secret. It's just cutting out all the middlemen and the people putting their fees on top of the investment. When you do it yourself with a rental property, or you go into a smaller deal with some other investors, you know, you reap all the rewards. It's, you know, it's just essentially like buying something wholesale instead of going to the uh, fancy department store to buy the same product. Okay, let's get into it. What's your strategy to buy the flats? Yeah, so we it, a lot of this is predicated on cash flow. So this is a little counterintuitive, but we don't buy in places that are high price, you know, primary markets such as here in America, Los Angeles, Seattle, New York, Boston, Hawaii. These areas, you're not going to find what's called the rent-to-value ratio that you need to cash flow. The quick and dirty rule that we use is we're looking for a rent-to-value ratio 1% or higher. So you find the rent-to-value ratio by taking the monthly purchase price divided by the, the monthly rents divided by the purchase price. So for example, you know, kind of the, it's there, the prototypical rental property we'll find is something that rents for $1,000 a month. That's $100,000 purchase price. So 1000 by 100 grand is 1%. You guys can do the math on your own on what you see around you. And you know if it's under 1%, you won't buy it because it won't cash flow on a positive on a monthly basis, right? Not saying that properties in California, Seattle, New York won't appreciate, but we are more better. We don't bet on appreciation. I consider that gambling. We go more off of the monthly cash flow, which we feel is more prudent. Whether in a okay, good so or you're bad looking economy. for immediate value on the rent to cost ratio of like how much you were going to pay on your mortgage and how much you're going to extract as inflow on the rent. You don't right. bet that the economy there will be like inflation and appreciation of the real estate. You don't care about all of that. That's all icing on top of the cake. Right? Got it. But what? But the thing that I'm looking at as the primary indicator going in is: Am I going to cash flow on a monthly basis? Are the rents going to pay for the principal interest taxes insurance or the mortgage, plus repairs, plus vacancy, plus paying a professional property manager to do my dirty work for me, plus a capex budget so that you know the roof's going to go out every ten to twenty years, appliances are going to go out every ten years, you know things like that needs to be accounted for, plus taxes, right, right, everything that this thing is going to cost you, right, because rental properties are not maintenance-free or cost-free. So you need to account for it and pay for it out of the monthly revenue that you get. Just mm -hmm. like any business. And do you try to be positive cash flow on a monthly basis? Yes. If not, we don't buy it. Got it. So every deal that you make brings you money from day one. That is correct. I mean, there are some geographic areas such as like Austin, Texas for one. Great market, but it just doesn't cash flow. So I don't invest that. Mm -hmm. How do you do to find those deals? Because most of the time, when you look at the rent to value ratio, it's not that great. And there's kind of like an equilibrium. The same flat, if you have to rent it, it's much cheaper usually than if you have to buy it and pay mortgages. Unless if you take very long duration mortgages like 30 uh, up to 40 years or if you have a very high down payment well the down payments are pretty much fixed right you're looking at a 20 percent down payment 
typically you can't get anything less than that. And we try and uh, maximize the amount of leverage that we can get. But okay, so it's still capital intensive, right? Every property will cost you the 20% down payment. You, right. you will get finance only for 80% of the value of the property. Right. When I was buying my rentals, the, you know, bought the one the first year, then I had to wait a couple of years to save up for the next one. I mean, it took me seven years to get up to 11 rental properties. I mean, it's watching grass grow. I mean, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme at all, but it is a get-rich-surely thing. It's cash flow builds on top of each other, and now you can acquire properties quicker and quicker and quicker. And what kind of property do you buy that gives you positive cash flow right away? Yeah, so it's kind of new. Is it old, refurbished? Typically, you're not on the high end. You're not in luxury properties, and you're not on the low end. War zone areas where your collections are going to suffer, and it's really dangerous war zone type of areas. But there's a sweet spot in the middle. Here in America, you know, you could probably define that as seven hundred bucks to twelve hundred dollars a month rent. That is, you know, you're kind of your lower middle class workforce housing type of clientele, which is huge here in America. And I think a lot of places around the world, the middle class is shrinking. The lower middle class is this huge glut of the population, which needs good value housing, which we provide. And then, you know, like a lot of the people are probably struggling to find these types of 1% rent-to-value ratio properties. You're probably going to have to look elsewhere geographically. I live here in Hawaii. Well, I'll never find a place that'll cash flow here in Hawaii. <laughs> um, but I invest in places like Birmingham, Atlanta, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Memphis, Little Rock, Huntsville, Alabama, places like that, which you may or if you're not from America, you've probably never heard of these places, right? But this is how the most of the country lives, not in the sexy markets, not in the gateway markets. So you have to look elsewhere and it typically will not be in your backyard. You obviously have researched a lot the market, you understand it. You have spotted that there was a sweet spot which was probably underpriced. Why do you think there is such a market anomaly in the middle ground, like not in the luxury, not in the very, very low-grade housing? Why is it so profitable there? Well, it's it's kind of a sweet spot. I mean, it's it, on paper, it's more profitable on the low end. But I'll tell you, with all the headaches and you know issues that will happen, you're not going to make money at the end of the day. So there's a sweet spot. We grade properties from A, B, C, D class. A class are your properties that are 30 years, 40 years and younger. Your class B properties might be built in the 1980s, 1970s. Your class C properties are built in the 1960s and 50s. You know, so we kind of target those 1960s to 1990s properties. It's kind of that, that middle area where we can cash flow and have the least amount of headaches and tenant profile. And part of that is we want a strategy that does as well in a recession, bad economic times. And the sort of the idea is in bad economic times, the people that are living in the luxury apartments or houses, they lose their jobs and they have to move back to more of a value-based class B housing, and which is where we like to be. Right. We want to catch people as they fall to us. And we also, also want to serve the glow of the population today. So this is why, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a boring strategy, but it does really well in a recession. And we've seen it kind of play out through the pandemic. It all makes sense, actually. 
you're just staying, staying away from the shiny property, luxury, and from the bad deals that will just won't give you the return. Right. How do you find the good deals? Because America is a huge country, and um, I have friends, they are doing real estate investing, and they usually take like one year to study in depth a city, a market, to really understand what's the best value to buy, at which price to buy, what's the most interesting kind of flat to rent. And it's just for one city, like one large city such as Paris or London. How long did it take you to develop such an expertise for America? I mean, for us, it's like we're buying commodities, right? Things that cash flow. We hire property managers and inspectors to make sure we're buying a good property in a good area. But as far as we're concerned, I mean, it's it's not something that needs to be like spotted out through a fine-tooth comb. If the numbers work, we proceed ahead. And we kind of do due diligence, of course. But you know, for people, like, where do you find deals? Where you hire professionals, brokers, property managers, help you source these deals. Um, if you're brand new at this, um, the way I started was I bought these things called turnkey rentals. So what those are is like a house flipper will pick up a beat up property, fix it up brand new, new electrical, plumbing, flooring, appliances. Sometimes they'll even put a tenant in there for you. So it's truly like, you know, rental property with training wheels. People want to learn more about, you know, this strategy. I have a guide on my website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash turnkey. Um, great way to get started. That's how I got started. But, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it is getting good deal flow as I kind of you know, built up my portfolio, I started to go into more of these larger deals because I wanted to get away from your mom and pa investors buying, you know, one unit, two units, eight units, 20 units. I wanted to get into a 60, 100 to 300 unit properties to get away from that competition. And competition is a big thing. This competition is what is the dumb money that bids up properties. So just like how, you know, you don't want to buy properties and Los Angeles or Paris, right? Because you just have so much stupid money there that is unsophisticated, pushing prices up. This is why you go to less hot markets, less like known, more of the flyover areas in, you know, out there, maybe in rural areas of the country. And you buy these properties that aren't the luxury high end stuff because most unsophisticated investors are scared from that stuff. They want the shiny objects. So this is kind of why we kind of stay in this like working class kind of sector. Got it. You started buying your first property as just a regular engineer. So you had a job, you were employed, you waited, you were patient to get your 20% save down payment. Can you tell us how did you get your first mortgage? How did you negotiate that? Negotiated that and then... What was the change when you wanted to buy your second property? Yeah, I mean, that's actually the easy part. I mean, you just go to any bank and they'll give you a, a loan, right? So no secret, no special trick, just save it. I mean, I guess the, the, the one secret is like, you want to work off referrals, right? Because not all lenders are created equal. At the end of the day, they're all looking at the same computer screen and giving you the pricing on, this, on you know, the, the government-sponsored type of stuff, the government-backed loans. And they're going to apply, you know, certain percent, maybe one percent or one and a quarter or two percent fees, so they they can stay in business for kind of doing their service. But essentially, it's the same damn thing, just sold by a different person. 
but you know when when you're going through underwriting you're getting approved making sure you're working with somebody who has done this in the past and work with investors or most people they just work with homeowners right so th there's a big difference so you know this is kind of gets into like your network is your net worth you know if you have other investors in your corner and you want to work off referrals the best way of going but essentially you could walk on over to the nearest bank and and get a loan from them i don't wouldn't necessarily like recommend that i would always say go off referrals off of more of a specialist that, that works with investors but i mean as long as you have the 20 percent down payment adequate credit score you're not in huge like debt you have good income which kind of equates the debt service coverage ratio of at least 50 percent you should be good to go okay and i mean after all from a lender's perspective it's a hard asset it's real estate it's good yeah, I mean the mortgage market is quite efficient. Banks lend a lot of money to for people to buy more mortgages and houses. Right. And then, how long do you wait to get your second house? Because most people need to wait a lot to get twenty percent down payment saved. Yeah, and this is you know that's the hardest thing I think is saving your money. <laughs> you know, to like started tightening the belt. Um, I work with a lot of high net worth clients, a lot of doctors, engineers lawyers, accountants, but more importantly, I work with a lot of like really frugal people that are able to save a lot of money. Most of my clients are able to save at least $30,000, $50,000 a year. So, you know, they can be buying a property or two a year. And, you know. I think that's the important part because there are lots of people who earn a lot of money and they're broke. They save absolutely nothing. Right, right. But then, you know, in their defense, right, if, you know, what are their options? old crappy like wall street type of products i mean i wouldn't be too motivated i got really motivated when i started to equate hey if i save up thirty thousand dollars for a down payment on a house that means i get 300 bucks every month just in cash flow coming back that can like equates the three four thousand dollars a year to buy that next property even quicker that was very motivating once i, I got to that point so that's it you just wait to save for your second property because now you have extra cash flow from your first property. Right, that's simple passive cash flow. Rinse, wash, repeat. No trick, no magic. No tricks are for kids, Damn man. Simple. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I think I think that's where like a lot of real estate educators and gurus got this all wrong, right? They're trying to work with guys who are broke. I don't work with broke guys. When you're broke, you got to try all these like tricks and games and things that don't really work and smoke and mirrors. But with real estate investing, you need money to invest. If you don't have money, you can't invest, man. You got to go. I mean, I there's a lot of tactics for no money down. I just don't do any of that type of stuff. I don't teach it. I work with people who are responsible with their money and want to prudently invest in hard assets such as real estate. If it's so simple, why so few people do it? Yeah, I mean, if everybody said what I, you know, kind of preaching is, you know, buy if handful of rentals or go into syndications or private placements as a private LP investor, you know, people would be able to quit their day jobs most in like less than a decade. How would society function, right? Who would build our bridges? Who would get our coffee? Who would do anything, right? If everybody was financially independent. America already lost one engineer. Yeah. I mean, I was, I would, I'm not going to say I was a very good one. I was kind of a lazy engineer with that, but I mean, look, there's like, there are barriers to this, right? And 
buying point. You know, people are probably listening on like, oh, I don't understand the numbers. You know, it's like, dude, like, well, first of all, download my analyzer on my website. It's for free. Simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzers. Learn the numbers. It's not freaking rocket science, guys. You know, this is not complicated stuff. This is like high school math level. Understand how the numbers work. And then some people might get hung up on, well, you're telling me I have to buy something where I can't feel it, touch it. You got it, bro, right? That's what you want to do if you want to go into a cash flow positive property. And at that point, you've thinned the herd. 90% of people won't do anything. Financial independence is not for everybody. It's for the worthy that are willing to put themselves out there, get out of their comfort zone, execute and take action. And that's why it's so much sweeter for people who get there. So it sounds so easy then to get your first house. Well, easy. Let's say uh, simple, but not easy. Right. Simple, but not you easy. You wait to have saved 20% down payment. You buy your first house. That first house is give you positive, positive cash flow every month. You reuse that and you keep saving to buy your second house. And then you keep going. How does the mortgage negotiation go with the bank? Does it get easier to get a mortgage once you want to ask like, are you for your second mortgage or third mortgage? It actually does. It's, it's easier because you're buying properties that make more money and improves your debt service coverage ratio when you're buying these 1% rent-to-value ratio properties. When you buy something stupid like your house that makes no money, it screws up your debt service coverage ratio. So it makes it harder for you to qualify for a loan. So the, the more rentals you get, the easier it gets. But here's a problem. You know, when I had in 2015, when I had 11 rentals, you start to get a little spoiled. I had maybe $3,000 coming at me every month and a few hundred dollars per property. But I, you know, I was having an eviction or two every year, some kind of big issue that happened every quarter, which is no problem because the professional property manager takes care of that. They're on the front lines doing that work for me. But I don't know what any family can survive off $3,000 passive cash flow a month. And this is where I started to join different masterminds, get around other accredited investors, higher net worth investors. And I realized they had transitioned to investing in private placements and syndications, which are kind of like country club deals where a pool of investors would pull money together to go buy a better deal, a bigger asset, such as an apartment complex. And this is kind of where I transitioned from buying little rental properties to buying larger pools of properties. And what was your motivation? Is it to buy bigger assets at once or is it because it was giving you a higher yield? It was a higher yield, better tax benefits. But I think most importantly, the thing that compelled me to kind of make that jump was, you know, like. Owning 10 properties isn't that hard to manage, but if you own 30 properties, you quickly go bonkers and it becomes a job in itself, even if you have professional property management. So each kind of transition, you know, when your net worth becomes half a million to a million dollars net worth, you got to transition to more for scalability in a larger deal. If tomorrow someone wants to get started to buy their first house, a buy-to-let investment, how would you recommend that person to source his deals? How to get the right flat? I would recommend going to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash turnkey. It's a kind of a complete guide to buying a rental property. It kind of teaches 
the analyzer in there that it's the you know this is a lot of numbers driven and then you go and assemble a team of property managers and brokers and then you get a third-party property inspector to inspect the property so these these are the, the team that you're building to help vet the property to make sure you don't buy a lemon and to ensure that you're really going to collect the rents that you thought that you were going to collect to be able to cash flow um the first one's always the hardest right but i would say kind of start there educate yourself listen to my podcast the first dozen podcasts were all about buying rental properties on your own the over the years the topics have kind of changed to more accredited investor high net worth strategies surrounding tax life insurance and you know syndication investing but i would say if you're kind of new out there start with the turnkey content first did you visit yourself the own your own properties in the early days or did you trust a broker and a property manager to just give you the deals and tell you lane this is the deal just buy it yeah i mean i kind of trusted people in the beginning i didn't visit my properties and kind of really yeah it sounds crazy right but a lot of people do this it the does right sound way. crazy <laughs> do it i mean it's just you know doing finding the right people through referrals and then trusting them and then refining the process on the next go around, right? As you start to learn more and more and more. So what did you do in the whole process? Well, what do you, what do you mean specifically? So in, if you didn't source the property, if you don't manage them, have you outsourced the entire that, process? That's the idea, man. Anything? That's why it's freaking simple passive cash flow. You try and do as little as possible. You have professionals on your team kind of doing all the specifics. Your role here is being the investor. You know, we always say you don't want to be the landlord. You want to be the investor. You're the person putting, you're the project manager. It's like, you know, what does a project manager do? They technically don't do anything, but they're the orchestrator that kind of puts together, finds the deal, finds the, um, the professionals and kind of puts everything together. I would say the biggest part of this is the property manager, because this is the person who's going to operate the property, find the tenant for you, manage the tenant, get all the contracts for you signed, collect the rents, you know, and that they're going to come to you for management decisions. Hey, Sam, should we fix this? Should we not? You know. Sounds fair. Pretty easy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's not easy. It is kind of simple, though, right? And at which point then do you think people should completely leave their job and become full-time real estate investor if they're success successful in their strategy? Yeah, well, I mean, technically, once you your passive income has exceeded your monthly burn rate, you're financially independent. Right? You've hit zero gravity, you're weightless. So for a lot of people, that might be $5,000 a month. That might mean like 15 or 20 houses. Um, but everybody's different, right? I think it doesn't take too long to get to that many rental properties and that passive cash flow that, and then once you get up there, it gets easier, right? You start to get into syndication deals. I mean, why stop at $10,000 a month, you know, 20,000, 50,000, you know, just kind of more and more and more and more and more. Can you tell us how it works, the syndication deals? Yeah, so syndications are larger deals put together where passive investors come in and pool together their money 
the analogy that we like to use a lot is like an airplane. So in the airplane, you have the cockpit where the general partners sit. These general partners source the deal. They manage the deal. They manage the property managers. They, their role is asset managers. They get the debt in their name. So none of the past investors have debt in their name. They're on the front lines for legal liability as managing members. And then the passive investors can come back and coach the airplane, pay their uh, their investment, put in their investment as passive investors and sit back and relax and cash checks. And passive investors board multiple planes. They can be in dozens and dozens of deals. And the beauty of this is they diversify their portfolio across many different asset classes, apartments, self-storage facilities, mobile home parks, commercial storefronts. And they can also, you know, not have to do any of the management abilities, right? But the thing is, the hard thing is like finding these deals, right? These are country club deals. Unless you expand your network, you won't get access to them. How do you network with other really state passive investors? Um, well, I mean, part of it is like finding the right people, right? Like if you go to most real estate clubs, in my opinion, aren't very good because it just has people who are broke trying to get rich quick, right? These are the guys flipping houses, wholesaling houses, trying to use all these no money down strategies. As a passive investor, you're trying to find other high net worth passive investors. And it's hard. A lot of these guys, they value their privacy. They don't have time to go to some happy hour thing with a bunch of random investors, right? Because a lot of them have high paid jobs. They have families. Easier said than done, right? I think the important thing is to stay away from a lot of like the time wasters, such as the real estate clubs or like it's these businesses or these, these types of free kind of meetup events. But like one, I think what you have to do is be on the lookout for other high net worth investors. And once you find one, build organic relationships, real organic friendships with people and stay close to them. And they'll, they'll find other people too organically. You know what's striking to me in everything you say? It's all so logical and it's so, so simple. And the reason I'm saying that is I've been in a couple of meetups with some kind of real estate gurus. And although I'm somebody who who has been in the financial sector, investment banking, and heard a lot of jargon for like many, many years, I couldn't get what they were saying. It sounded like plain full bullshit. Yeah, because it is a bunch of bull. You know, a lot of the, those kind of real estate gurus, and this is kind of what I do, what I do, and I put it all on my website for free, is because I'm upset because there's a lot of people out there trying to sell these expensive programs. Exactly. To people who can't afford it. That don't seem to make any sense. Right. And what's worse is they they work with people who can't afford them in the first place. If you don't have money, I'll tell you straight up, don't work with me, right? Don't go to my website. If you don't have money, you got to get your finances right, buddy. But if you're responsible with your money, able to save at least five to $10,000 a year, get on the simplepassivecashflow.com train. Learn what what we do and educate yourself with all the free content that we have. Yeah, plain simple. The problem is in the real estate investment sector, there were a lot of gurus that kind of gave a very bad image of real estate investment. Because as you said, they're just chasing for people who don't have the financial education. They don't know what they're buying. They kind of want to believe in this quick um, get to rich quick scheme. 
And whenever you hear get rich quickly, it's it's most of the time a scam. Right. And I mean a lot of those like those meetups are the worst, right? They'll they'll hide, they'll teach you how to call your credit card company during lunch and get an increase so you can buy their program at the end of the day. They'll place people in the audience to run to the back of the room to create a frenzy. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just I mean, it was so obvious. <laughs> it was so obvious to me that it was a complete scam. But, you know, when people don't have the financial education and they kind of sound impressed by all the jargon and the way they, they explain it, oh, you have to build a system, blah, 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 whereas it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Real estate investing is, is plain simple. Get right, the money, right. leverage yourself, buy your first flat, get passive cash flow, buy a second flat, and your balance sheet will grow. Right. The hard thing is saving the money. And that's this is why I like real yeah. estate, because there is a barrier to entry. You can, If you don't have money, you don't have... 10, 20 grand, you can't even start to do this stuff, right? And this is why I like to invest in apartment complexes today. If you can't get, you know, five, 10, 20 million dollars together, you can't buy said apartment complex. So now let's talk a bit about risk management. You have a huge portfolio in the real estate. How do you diversify yourself? Um, so we kind of go after a few geographic areas and we one of the things I tell my investors is you don't want to go into any one deal with more than five or ten percent of your net worth. Right. So this is where the syndication model comes in uh, wonderfully for LP investors, as they're already LP investors. They, the usually the worst case scenario is they lose their initial investment. They don't. They're kind of hedged to the downside in that way. But as LPs, they can diversify over a multitude of different projects to kind of stay under that. You know that being too heavy in one project just in case one does go bad got it so never more than five or ten percent of your net worth in one single deal you do geographic diversification do you do also like inflow income stream diversification commercial real estate versus uh, residential real estate do you try to yeah so i'm in i'm in all commercial real estate i stay out of residential real estate Primarily because residential real estate is based on emotion. It's not based on numbers. Right now, the supply is very low. I don't know what demand is. Demand could be higher, could be lower. But because the supply is low, prices are high, which is stupid to me. It makes no sense. But this is why I stay in the commercial real estate realm. And also because we do value-add real estate. So we, what we do is we when we buy like a 300-unit apartment complex, we'll rehab the units slowly we put four thousand six thousand dollars into every unit new appliances new flooring new paint jobs some playground equipment for the community and we'll be able to bump the rents up maybe 10 percent, 20 percent and then that way that's how we're able to force appreciate the property because the property's value is based on not comparable sales but what the net operating income is divided by the cap rate so it's kind of like those people who own businesses, they know that their EBITDA divided by the multiplier is what their business should be evaluated as. Same thing as a apartment complex or a commercial piece of real estate. Do you find the pricing in the commercial real estate to be more rational than in residential? Right. Commercial real estate is based on net operating income, which is your Always. essentially your profit divided by the cap rate, period. And that's it. That's it. So if you have control over your net operating income, right? If you can increase your income or decrease your your expenses, 
you approve your net operating income, thus changing the price of your asset. So this is the difference between, you know, people talk about appreciation a lot, but I kind of break it out between market appreciation, which is just luck, right? Market can go up and down, and then force appreciation. Force appreciation is taking work in your own hands to increase the net operating income by putting in hard work, adding value to the asset to increase the asset's value. Could you explain in simple terms, how do you do that? How do you increase the operating income? Yeah, so for let's take, for example, if I bump the rents up 10% across the board, 10%, uh, normally our rents are, so let's say 70 bucks on $700 or 100 bucks on a 100 unit building times 12 is... $120,000 of extra net operating income a year. So if I divide that at a five cap, what I've done is increase the value of the property by $2.4 million. It's kind of crazy, right? All I did was bump mm-hmm. the rents up 10% on a hundred. You? Are you a price maker? What's that? Are you a price maker? Can you just increase the rent? Yeah. I mean, if, if we're improving the product, making the unit nicer, Instead of getting rid of the dingy floors, putting that new LVT flooring in, making kicking out all the deadbeats that live in the community, making it a nicer area, power washing sides of buildings, new appliances. Yeah, I mean, people pay it all the time, right? Of course, you have to. That's this is where you have to buy the right property in the right area to absorb that price increase, and it doesn't take overnight to do this. But it's something that we've consistently shown that we can do in the right properties to make a small change like that, all while we cash flow. Okay, so you're buying property where you see a potential to increase the value, then you will improve like the value of the property to increase the rent and then get even more money and more cash right, flows. Right, right. Ideally, we buy properties that are already on the market rent. So even if we didn't do anything, Whenever the next tenant's rent is up for due, we just increase the rents maybe fifty bucks. That's called like natural increased mm-hmm. rents. But, but how we'll, do you know that? Well, we how know do that you know if a property is uh, uh, rented underpriced. Well, in apartments, we have a lot better data sources for this. This is why we like apartments. Apartments are very commodities. They're just boxes essentially, and there's a lot more of them. Whereas single-family homes, they're all different. Right, different locations. It's not as a streamlined data that we can mm-hmm. get with apartments. At, at the end of the day, we always verify this walk in the street, right? We go into competing apartment complexes. We see the level of their product and what they're, what they're pricing it at and their level of occupancy. And we can kind of spot check that with the reality. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't buy properties unless we already know that the prop, there's already low hanging fruit there, right? But we also want to know that there's an additional upside to bump the rents up. You know, that we've bought properties before that are renting for four hundred dollars, three hundred fifty dollars a month, and we can bump them up to seven hundred dollars. That's an extreme case that we love all day to do. But to bump rents up ten percent, fifteen, twenty percent is is pretty customary, especially when you're increasing the living condition of of the units, right? 
it's one thing just to bump the rents up a hundred bucks. But what we're doing is we're we're kind of drastically doing a big facelift on the units. And tenants are happy to pay that. If not, they leave and we don't want them. And we get somebody else in there. <laughs> so you started with residential real estate. At which point did you switch to commercial? Um, when I had 11 units, we moved to residential, uh, from residential properties to larger commercial assets, better pricing, better economies of scale. Okay. Do you ever sell your assets or do you keep them for passive cash flows? Most times we keep it for passive cash flow, refinance our original equity out. So we're in there for, you know, no money, none of our original money. So we can kind of play with house money. In certain occasions when somebody comes around and offers us a good price, we'll sell it, right? So it's a robust business plan. You know, we're cash flow guys. As long as the asset is, you know, low headache to manage on behalf of our investors, uh, we'll do that. But, you know, we're pretty, we're flexible, right? If something changes the economy, you know, we'll, we can move. This is why I do this type of investing is because I think it's probably the best risk-adjusted return out there. I mean, think about it. We buy properties that are already stabilized, 90% occupied or more, and we already were cash flowing day one. It's like buying an existing business that has a very strong cash flow stream. Hmm. And we buy it with the ability to bring in, fix it up with the money that we have and bump the rents up even further to capture that force appreciation. And if market appreciation happens, then awesome, right? That's Cherry icing on, on top cake. of the cake, right? That's when we, you know, that's when these pro the prices of the properties pop and we like to get lucky. But um, should the economy take a tumble back, right? Like this is why we invest in this type of stuff. Workforce housing, lower middle class sector. I mean, the population is increasing here in America and we'll keep continuing the cash flow. Heck, maybe we'll get the rehabs done cheaper, right? Because people are looking for jobs. <laughs> Have you ever considered starting your own real estate investment fund? Because it sounds like your return are beating a lot of the real estate funds. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do today. We don't operate in a blind pool fund. We operate by individual properties where investors can pick and choose the assets as opposed to clumping everything in a blind pool. When I'm a passive investor, that's how I like to invest. Um, the problem with the funds a lot of times is, you know, people will just put junk in the fund, right? It's kind of like a hot dog, right? Parts of the cow nobody wants. Awesome. Lane, where people can hear more about you? Yeah, they can check out um, my podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow, and then check out my website, simplepassivecashflow.com. Awesome. Thank you very much, Lane. Wishing all the best to you. Cheers. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Take it easy, man. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode enjoyable, inspiring, and educational. In this era of instant gratification, it is more important than ever to train our delayed gratification muscle. So keep learning. Keep improving by 1% every day. You may not see the results right now. But this is a secret of all the successful people I've met. Please help me spread financial education by sharing this podcast with your friends and community. 
I would love it if you could also leave us a review. It really helps the show. Now, I would like you to forget about all the advertising that is being pushed to us on a daily basis and think about your personal financial goals. What do you really want to achieve with your money? If you have financial objectives, then check out the Nova Money app. Nova is an AI that will show you how to set financial goals and how to achieve them. A plan is only useful if you can follow it. That's why Nova will send you daily motivational messages to give you the strength to ignore the daily temptations of spending money and stay focused on your goals. Like other budgeting apps, Nova connects all your bank accounts in one place to give you the full picture. The difference is that the Nova AI will do all the budgeting and tracking for you. The second difference is that unlike many free personal finance apps, we don't sell users data. All your data is encrypted and will remain completely private. Make sure that you're investing in your financial education. Make sure that you're building your financial freedom. And I'll speak to you in the next episode.